Remember the Orwell book, 1984? Well, John Lennox has a book called 2084, subtitled Artificial Intelligence and the Future of Humanity. And uh, he's, he's dealing, I like Lennox, by the way, a lot. You know, he's dealing with something going on right now, this push and this move toward artificial intelligence, and whether this is something we should be embracing, something we should reject, something we should be cautious about. And you'd think, well, that doesn't sound very Christian. Well, it's the second half of the book that gets more into uh, the Christian realm of things. But uh, I'll get to that eventually. But I want to do a couple of his earlier chapters here. He talks about artificial intelligence as its future. Is it bright or is it not so bright? So he has a chapter for each. So I'm going to do chapter four. Where he talks about the, the brightness, the, at least the possibility and he said, as an example, of course, he's uh, from the United Kingdom. And he said, the UK is planning to invest something like 1,000 PhDs in AI with this huge fund set up. And China is publishing all sorts of articles on AI. It's way ahead of the rest of the world. And, and people are excited about it. And he said, but let's hold on here. You know, a lot of technological advances have an upside and a downside. And we know that. And so we probably don't want to get too excited. And then he's going to be fair about it. He's going to first talk about the upside. What are some of the good things that have come about? Well, digital assistance says it can perform tasks that require human intelligence. So you get Alexa and Siri. They'll answer our questions. They'll give recommendations. They'll book travel for us. They'll control the smart devices in our house. So that's, that's great. He said some digital assistants are being trained in advanced speech recognition so they can give early warning of possible self-harm or maybe even suicidal tendencies. Then there's medicine. AI is being used for development of new drugs in automation of medical treatments like robotic operations, which sounds pretty scary to me, but okay. And uh, health provision, he said, especially in diagnostics, it's amazing what it can do in that field. He uh, quotes again from England, the chief executive of their National Health Service says, health providers will be paid to substitute, substitute clinicians with machines as the NHS embraces artificial intelligence to improve patient outcomes and deliver savings. Now, the first part, I like that. You know, it'll improve patient outcomes. Well, let's hope that's true, but deliver savings. Uh, okay, I mean, if they use their money wisely, but anyway, that's just me kind of worrying about them worrying about dollars. But he said, even in this area of medicine, there could be a downside. So he's giving us a peek on the other side of it. Uh, he says that the Academy of Medical Royal Colleges in the UK warns that if you have more health apps, that medical services could be overwhelmed because people who are actually okay, but their AI-enabled smartphones or their fitness attachments have erroneously told them they've got problems, they need to go seek medical help. They start flooding the uh, medical facilities there. All right, so let's uh, let's skip over what else uh, that can go on here in, in the positive realm of artificial intelligence. Well, how about auto autonomous vehicles? We're starting to see that on the road. Uh, get more self-driving cars out there, supposed to be safer, faster, making better decisions. And uh, let's hope that's true. Uh, says uh, that, that may work. <laughs> We'll see. Can you imagine? Uh, I think it's crazy enough out there in the freeway uh, with people behind the wheel, but I don't know, maybe. 
language translators. He said all he needs to do, he's talking as himself, John Lennox, he said all I have to do is write a letter in English, feed it into a Google Translate, within a few seconds I have a German translation. He said I'm ready to go. He said that's phenomenally useful. It's used in advertising. It's used in the in, in industry. It said it'll, um, for example, it can help experiments to find out the best high-capacity car battery. It can help in the planning and decision-making stages. Uh, I thought it was interesting. They have a robotic flying scarecrow that uses an AI system to keep birds away from airports so planes don't crash after they've sucked in some birds. How about somebody said this? Um, this is a man named Stephen Shanklin. He's, uh, he's the vice... Oh, this is a report that the vice president of AI for Google said the previous day, AI is still very, very stupid. It's really good at doing certain things which our brains can handle, but it's not something we could press to do general purpose reasoning like analogies or creative thinking or jumping outside the box. But, I mean, there are some great things that it can do. So he ends the chapter by saying, here's an optimistic summary of everything he's been talking about so far. Astronomer Royal Sir Martin Rees said this, Our lives, our health, and our environment can benefit still more from further progress in biotech, cybertech, robotics, and AI. To that extent, I'm a techno-optimist. Well, he also said in the rest of his talk, but there is a potential downside. These advances expose our interconnected world to ever new vulner vulnerabilities. And that's what Linux is going to talk about in this next chapter. So I want to cover both today. And by the way, he's got extensive notes at the end of every chapter so you know where he got his information. Uh, he's done a thorough job of uh, researching here. So here's the next chapter. This is chapter 5. Perhaps the future is not so bright after all. And he said, take job recruitment as an example. He said uh, AI is being used more and more for large corporations for hiring. Uh, there's a company called HireVue. And they have a platform that simplifies the job interviewing process. But one woman said, she sat at home alone. She was qualified, and she's putting all her information there for a computer. She said, it makes me feel like we're not worthwhile. The company couldn't even, uh, couldn't even assign a person for a few minutes. That's becoming less human. Well, yeah, it is, exactly. What about a threat of, bob, of, of losses in jobs? So you may get a job if a computer waves you through, but... It might uh, take your job someday. So there's a deepening concern on part of a lot of people that jobs are at risk from developments in robotics and AI. Machines are already replacing humans, doing a lot of manual things. And it says eventually we're going to see machines replacing humans that are doing thinking things. So it's one thing just to replace people having to do back-breaking work. That's great. But replacing people at thinking? It says... Uh, he says, of course, the fact that it technically might be possible to replace a worker with a robot doesn't mean it's going to make economic sense to do that. But uh, one person, and they did a survey with uh, different uh, people in academics, and it said AI should be better than humans at pretty much everything in about 45 years. And others predicted that all human jobs would be automated within 125 years. Now think about that for just a minute. If every one of those jobs is lost and you don't do anything, how do you spend your day? Um, I'm picturing Brave New World. People sit around and, and suck on their uh, pipes or take their drugs and just kind of zone out. 
I mean, I think we're built to feel like we're accomplishing something. So I don't know how that would be. Uh, he gets a, a report here from another organization that says something like 7 million jobs could be displaced by 2020, but that another 7 million could be created. But he said, we really don't know how jobs will be affected, but they are going to be affected. One of the big areas, he saved this for the other half of his uh, chapter here, is he calls it Big Brother Meets Big Data. And that's the Orwellian aspects of it, isn't it? That it's going to pose, because of AI, it poses a threat to individual and corporate privacy. Data, he says, that's harvested from us can be used not only to inform us, but to control us. He said criminals want to get their hands on this data. And Linux says he, his credit card got uh, hacked from a well-known company and had to start all over again. And there's something he says it's called surveillance capitalism. And uh, he said uh, we're moving into kind of a new economic order that collects the big data that we generate and exploits it as raw material to make money in ways that are less obvious to most people. And he mentioned Siri and Alexa. He said novelty blurs the oddity of paying to live with a vigilant, inhuman spy linked to an all-too-human corporate profit center thousands of miles away. He says, if you're going to... Now, this is not him. This is a uh, woman that he's uh, quoting here. If we're going to welcome an ill-regulated corporate eavesdropper into our house, she said, that's a dumb, reckless way of self-bugging. That's an interesting way to put it, isn't it? Well, that's corporate. Uh, corporate, or I think he called it, let me go back a page, he call it corporate? Surveillance, surveillance capitalism. But here's another kind of surveillance that's really dangerous, and we're seeing it all over the world, and that's surveillance communism. And he said uh, a few years back, there was a report on the development of AI in China, and China was spent, in a, uh, spent about $200 billion in 2017 on domestic security. They're going to install something like 400 million cameras by the word by the year 2020 so that's already passed now he said what's that going to be like china is using ai for social control not to make lives better not to make life safer but just so they can control them better he said they're gradually rolling out a social credit system to check on the reliability and trustworthiness of its citizens so you get social credit points to start with and you get more if you do things like use public transit, if you keep fit, if you report on somebody you've seen with large amounts of foreign currency, hmm. so you get social credit points if you rat on your fellow human being there. As your points accumulate, you can get more and more perks. You get better jobs, better mortgage opportunities, better places for your kids in school, travel possibilities, and things like that. Whoa, but what about... If you're antisocial, like maybe you associate with somebody that the government thinks is unsafe or you come into contact with the police or you overindulge in alcohol, you lose points. And that leads to penalties. You'll get less access to a job that you'd like, less access to a house you might enjoy, restrictions on your travel, maybe even the restaurants that you could visit. You might even be dis dis uh, denounced, he says, as a discredited person on a public television screen as you walk past. Does this sound like Big Brother? Yes, it does. He said a lot of it ba is based on advanced AI facial recognition techniques, and that gets funneled into a central computing center, center, which will soon have millions of cameras reporting on it. 
says Chinese companies are fitting their employees, in some cases with headgear that conceals technology to read the brain waves and send the data to computers that check on emotions like depression, anxiety, or anger. Wow. So he says, you can see these plans represent a massive hacking of human beings and are taking the world to what he calls a rather scary step toward a dictatorship, an authoritarian dream world. He said that could spread so quickly all around the world. Um, he says the Times, London Times in 2019 reports on a two-year analysis of more than 1,000 studies of the relationship between facial movements and emotions. And they did not find support, interestingly enough, for a stereotypical facial expression as being predictive of feelings. He says, so you can't really tell, for example, you can't infer happiness from a smile or anger from a scowl. But he says, you know, many major providers of security technologies think otherwise. Well, he said, if that's the case, you're going to have a lot of mistakes. And there are going to be some tragic injustices that people that get targeted. So maybe you have a scowl on your face because you have a headache. But somehow that's interpreted as being anti-government for the day. Well, that's terrible. And then he focuses on a terrible thing that's been happening in western China with the Uyghur people. They're predominantly Muslim. And the Chinese have done all sorts of surveillance. They've harassed those people. They've imprisoned them. They've uh, forced them into re-education camps and all. And he said those re-education camps house up to a million of them and why, why are they there? It was uh, surveillance apparatus that sent them there. It says many families have actually been split up, Uyghur families, husbands taken from their wives, children taken from parents. And these centers that are prisons, really, are trying to eliminate the Uyghur culture, turn the inmates into loyal Chinese citizens. It just gives me a chill thinking about it. So he said, what's going on is we're trading freedom for security. He said, that's in the air. He said, that's an Orwellian dystopia with a vengeance. Uh, credit scoring firms, he says, are increasingly dealing in indexes that bear no relationship to a bank statements. He says, insurance companies fit cars with tra tracking tra transponders to keep tabs on people's mileage. He says, Facebook, they've been storing records of its members. Uh, for their calls and texts, often without them knowing about it. And they allow companies like Cambridge Analytica to access it on a huge scale. Wow. Then there's military use of artificial intelligence, autonomous weapons. And uh, a person like Putin even said leadership in AI is going to be essential to global power in this next hundred years. So here we go. All sorts of things going on that are dangerous. He said, what we have to do, he said, we've got to ensure that research in AI is ethically structured so that you end up with systems that are safe, secure, and designed with commonly held human values. And of course, that's the catch, isn't it? What are our commonly held human values? Those seem to be going away from us. So he said, you know, it's one thing to have a mission statement that we're going to be real careful with this stuff. But he said, how do you get them owned in the hearts and minds and behavior of people for whom they're designed. He said, that's the big problem. How do we avoid 1984? We've got to change people on the inside, not just outside, have them agree or sign something. And of course, that's going to be the second half of his book. He's going to talk about Christianity is the way to change people on the inside. Um, he says at the very end of the chapter, he asks a very crucial question. Is it inevitable that big data will lead to Big Brother. 
And he mentions Yuval Harari, a historian. He says, he thinks so. And this is the quote that ends the chapter. Once big data systems know me better than I know myself, authority will shift from humans to algorithms. Big data could then empower Big Brother. Okay, so that's pretty chilling. But thank goodness he's got some uh, positive things in the second half of the book. Uh, how do we solve some of these problems? It's through the application of Christian uh, virtues. So we'll cover that another time. Thank you, and have a good day.